Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I have a very special guest. His name is Chris Treese. His last name is spelled T-R-E-E-C-E. And he just published a book this year. Title of it is Crazy Ambulance Tales. And you can find it on Amazon. Uh, right now it has 99 five-star ratings. And, uh, you can get a Kindle hardcover or paperback of the book. Um, and his full website, you can see more about the book. And him is crazyambulancetales.com. But he has all worked many, worn many working hats as a ditch digger, day laborer, gas station attendant, repelling instructor, Boy Scout camp quartermaster, emergency medical technician, hospital orderly, Universal Studios tour guide, grip production assistant, videographer, soundman, nightly TV news crew, newspaper and magazine journalist, Emmy award winning PBS TV writer, producer, director of documentaries, Hollywood comedy and adventure screenwriter and an award-winning public relations, communications, and marketing director, and as the dancing cow at the Enosburg Falls Dairy Festival. He's a former resident of the charming state of Vermont, and he lives right now in the storytelling telling capital of the world in Southern California with his wife and many children. But again, we're going to talk about this book. Really interesting. I got halfway through, and you see from the inside, some of these personalities you see driving around on the ambulance uh, are you know, flesh and blood people. So you hear a lot of those stories from this book. Again, it's Crazy Ambulance Tales by Chris Treese. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Awesome. So for people who may not have heard your name, you've worn a lot of different working hats. Um, it says you're an Emmy Award-winning writer, and the book is excellently written. I recommend it. Can you kind of talk about your background and what led you up to publishing Crazy Ambulance Tales in 2022? Sure. So um, I grew up in a, a rural mountain valley of middle-class homes, burbling streams, chirping birds, um, peace, security, and order. And it was a great place to have a childhood. And I was bored out of my mind as a teenager there. And all I wanted to do was to get out of all that peace, security, and order uh, and go have adventures somewhere. <laughs> so I had relatives who were cops or uh, one was a military medic. I had friends who were sheriffs or who were in search and rescue squads. And they used to regale me with tales of their adventures. And so as a young man, when I had the opportunity to get into EMS, I leapt at it. So you started off pretty young. I was surprised about how young the people in the full rig really were. They're all just post high school, at least in your time, pretty young people comparatively. Would you agree with that? Sure, so I was 18 when I started. So I think a lot of people in the United States uh, have an image in their minds of, you know, EMS professionals uh, in an urban or suburban setting. The reality is 50% of the EMTs in the U.S. are volunteer and usually rural, and 67% of firefighters in the U.S. are volunteers. So, um, you know, the typical EMT <clears throat> paramedic is not just a solidly built dude in a fire coat but it's also a 45-year-old married woman who works as a postal clerk and who's been serving her town for 20 years as an EMT and is probably really great and has saved a lot of lives. So uh, I moved to New England to go to college, and it was there that I joined a volunteer fire department at the age of 18. And I can tell you a little bit more about that if you'd like to hear something about St. Mike's and or first maybe we could touch on uh, the history of EMS in the U.S. and what a dangerous place it was to get into a car accident before 1970. Please do, yes. 
So uh, I learned a lot of this sitting at the feet of my fire and rescue elders. And I find these tales fascinating because um, before the interstate highway system was built, which happened, you know, after probably late 50s, continuing on until the early 70s, um, it was a really dangerous place in the U.S. to get in a car accident. So um, if you were in a car accident at that time, your relatives put you on the back of a door and slid it onto a pickup truck and drove to the local cottage hospital. They might trundle you into the back of a car, causing more injuries and take you to the hospital. Or you would wait for the undertaker to show up. And in Vermont, the undertaker was affiliated with your religious denomination. So if you were lying bleeding on the street, you had, if you were Catholic, you waited for the Catholic undertaker to show up. Or if you were Methodist, you waited for the Methodist. And if one of those undertakers was doing a funeral or hauling a corpse, uh, they might not get to you right away. So this, um, you know, this blows people's minds when they hear this. And I was talking with an old time friend of mine who's a, a newspaper reporter from Burlington, Vermont. He was telling me about a story that he read in the archives from the mid 60s of five people in a car accident who were lying on the turf on the side of the road waiting for five coroners to show up, you know, undertakers to put them in the back of their hearses and haul them to the hospital. So this was not a great state of affairs. Um, it, what happened when the interstate highway system was built is that people could start to kill themselves in dramatic high speed ways. And the US government, I'm being a little tongue in cheek about that, the US government mandated money for EMS, for emergency medical services. A lot of the first ambulances were started up and uh, we also saw training for EMTs. And at that point, the standard of care in the United States shot up dramatically and it became a much better place to be in a car accident. Right, and so it's hard to believe that God, it was that. And so you were in a rural environment in, in kind of Northern Vermont working, right? Can you talk about how, what led you into that job and what it was like working there? Sure, so um, I moved to, to Vermont to go to St. Michael's College, which is in Colchester, Vermont. It's a liberal arts school. And at St. Mike's in 1969, a student died on the playing field due to a lack of EMS care. So uh, the Dean of Students, whose nickname was and still is Pappy, who was a former firefighter and a Navy veteran, got together with a bunch of long haired, bell bottom wearing students. And they started the first college affiliated fire department in the United States. And I'll say that again, it was the very first college affiliated fire department in the US. And interestingly enough, there's a bunch of them. There's a lot of them out there. University of Vermont has one as well. Anyway, St. Mike's was the first. And these, these long-haired students became EMTs. They bought an old-school hearse-style ambulance. Must have been really tough to negotiate around in the back. They got themselves a pumper truck, and they started up service to the campus at first and then to the local communities. And so soon they were serving five local towns with EMS care, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. And uh, it's still happening now. So there are still... St. Mike's students serving the community today. Uh, if you go to the website for www.crazyambulancetales.com, uh, click on the St. Mike's page or click on the social media icons. I was on St. Mike's Facebook page on Thanksgiving and there they were, these young people, ages 18 through 22, EMTs and firefighters. There was a shot of them looking, William, frankly, rather rumpled 
gathered around their Thanksgiving turkey and it said that they had finally caught a break that day and had time to eat their meal. So that's the organization that I was a part of. Uh, we celebrated our 50th anniversary this spring and uh, I'm very proud that it's still going. That's amazing. And you had like a free room and board to work on this rig, right? Or you had some kind of benefit. That's true. So, uh, so summers, we were offered free room and board uh, to work on the ambulance. And, uh, and that was a great deal. And I, I usually took them up on that. And it, it wasn't, I mean, you had to do shifts, but there was, it's kind of like a fire uh, fireman. You wait around for the calls. Some days are more busy than others. Can you talk about what it was like working, you know, one of the 12 hour shifts? Sure. So, uh, so these days there's 60 students involved in fire and rescue oh, wow. at St. Mike's. There's, I think there's 30 on the fire unit and 30 on the ambulance unit. They actually have two rigs now. So uh, we responded in my day to three calls a day. They respond now to eight calls a day. So the, the call volume has gone up. Um, on average, I ran, and most of the students on the rig in my day, since there were only 17 of us at that time on the ambulance unit, uh, we ran 100 hours of duty a week. So that would be day and night. So you would sleep at the garage, you know, I would sleep at the garage three nights a week in the bunk room. And then during the day, there was sort of a, a cobbled together shifts. Uh, sometimes you would have a professor who wouldn't let you run duty during his class, but we had a lot of sympathetic professors. They would let us sit near the door. I would have a scanner or a pager on me with an earpiece. And then if I got a call, I would slip out the door and, and run over to the ambulance. So um, it was a great formation in that if you're doing three calls a day, you very quickly uh, become very good at EMS. And, you know, we, we were really privileged. I, I'm the black sheep of the family, frankly, the black sheep or the weird sheep of the EMS family. I didn't go, I didn't continue with a career in EMS, but hmm. most of my colleagues from the rig are now working as cops, professional firefighters, paramedics, doctors. Uh, they work in, you know, community service at various state levels, positions of leadership, or they went into the military. Wow. So that was it. And, it is interesting, like you talked to a priest there who said it's going to change your life once you join this uh, this EMS or EMT crew or ECH crew. Can you talk about what life was like before and what life was, life was like after uh, manning the rig at St. Michael's? Sure. So I walked out of mass one day, uh, Catholic mass, <clears throat> and talked to Father Mike, who was a wonderful priest and uh, just a very dear man. And I told him about my interest. I was a freshman. I had just come to the school, my interest in joining the fire and rescue squad. And he looked at me with great kindness and compassion. And he said, it's a wonderful organization. They do tremendous good, but you need to be careful because a lot of people who join fire and rescue have trouble with their grades or they lose all of their non fire and rescue friends. So just, you know, keep your eye out for that and know that that's a possibility. And, you know, God bless them because both of those things did become um, issues for me later. Not so much the grades. I always got good grades. I would bring a, a book with me in, in the back of the rig. And when we were in the hospital and the crew chief was writing a form, I'd be studying in the back. But I did reach a point, which I talk about later in the book, where I almost did lose all of my non-fire and rescue friends. And it was because I had... When you see so much trauma, so much death, and so much human suffering, 
I think you reach a point where you can feel that the rest of the world simply doesn't understand you. And I think that a lot of firefighters and EMTs and cops go through this. And there can be a point where you sort of gather the wagons and decide that you're, you're just going to kind of hang out with the folks who get you. So it was actually important for me uh, not to do that, though, and to continue with my non-EMS relationships, partially because those relationships um, were one of the things that kept me sane. I needed the company of people who weren't in EMS, who were, quote, normal, to kind of balance me out. Interesting. And that is a challenge. I mean, you write of people who got into going to the ambulance and didn't come back. Like, not everybody kind of made it, right? There was kind of this winnowing process. Would you agree with that? Sure. So it was it was extremely difficult to get onto the squad, which is ironic because there were never enough of us, but maybe that's part of the reason. Um, we always felt like we could use more members. But so to, to get on the ambulance, you had to take a semester-long uh, emergency care attendant class. And once you had passed that, then you could go through tryouts. And they were very rigorous. You had a written exam. You had a sort of verbal questions. You were presented with various scenarios. I recall in mine, uh, there was a scenario where someone was choking, another where I had to do CPR on someone, uh, another where there was a, a serious traumatic injury. And then after you went through that, you sat down in this kind of big room in front of a panel in an empty space, and then they grilled you. You know, they would ask you difficult questions and they wanted to see how you did under pressure. And, you know, if you could handle uh, those kinds of questions. And of course, I have the famous story there about how I saved, they asked me if I'd ever saved a life and I had to think about it. And I said, well, I saved a chicken and that um, brought down the house. They weren't expecting that answer. But anyway, um, once I got on the squad and if people passed that process, that winnowing process, most of them usually stayed. It was so difficult to get there that then they would do their squad training and then proceed from there into... Uh, later, they would go on to the EMT class, and that was a year-long class that we would take at the University of Vermont. Right, and you, I mean, there's a lot of camaraderie once you're kind of in a kind of elite unit. Like, you guys were very serious about the situation and, and the, the teamwork and things like that. Can you talk about what it was like, what the ranking was like in the, in the ambulance and, and how people worked together on a wide variety of calls? Sure. So we ran a four-person crew. So there would be the driver, uh, a crew chief. So the crew chief was responsible for all aspects of patient care. There was someone then uh, who was called a third. So the third would take vitals like pulse and blood pressure, respirations. And they were also a backup crew chief, just in case we had more than one patient. And then there was the fourth. Uh, the fourth was a probationary member in training. And as I like to say, most fourths are useless to the man and beast. They... Um, are given a clipboard and instructed to take notes for the crew chief. But most of the time, the, the fourth is in so much shock at this new world that the notes come out to be absolute gibberish. You know, they do their best. But, um, you know, later when I became a crew chief, fourths would hand, hand me notes that I just simply couldn't decipher. So oftentimes I would just simply take the clipboard from them and just have them help out. But uh, it's, it's a military-like environment. Uh, there's no discussion, you know, there's no consensus. Um, the crew chief makes decisions, and those decisions are instantly obeyed by all the members of the crew. 
So um, that's the kind of situation that, that we would deal with. We would also do you know, our training of various crew members. So people would train to become crew chiefs. So they would train to become drivers. And uh, that was something that we would do well, as well. But the environment is so intense that the bonds that it creates among the crew members are remarkable. And I've had all sorts of comments, but one of the comments I got was uh, <laughs> that someone said to me, he was amazed at how many of us married each other. And, you know, it kind of makes sense that if you're working with other people and you see them, you know, handle life's worst situations with compassion and competence, you really get to know that person pretty well. And uh, we have a lot of marriages that came out of Fire and Rescue Squad. Right. It's like a huge bonding experience, right? Like you guys are. And there's some pretty harrowing uh, events that you handle too, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, every day. <laughs> Can you talk? I mean, you, you have a different perspective. You have, di you, yeah. you have a different perspective on car crashes now, don't, don't you? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, and... and it's too bad for my kids. You know, I've got great kids, but I have kids now that drive and they really go, <laughs> they, I, I put them through the ringer with a lot of stuff that they want to do that I'm like, nope, nope, no, you're not doing that. You're not going there. You know, nothing good happens after midnight um, because of everything that I've seen. So um, yeah, it's a wild world. And it's one of the things that uh, Brian in the book said to me about you know, you, you get on the rig as a, a well-meaning kind of altruistic neophyte. And then as you go through the process of seeing how tra traumatic and brutal the world can be, um, you know, it changes you into a person who's, I think, a lot more careful, maybe sadder and wiser. Right. Like you are one of the, like you're a front line. You see the deaths, you see the injury and harm. Right. And uh, so that's like a tough burden to carry. You would think a lot of you, I mean, I was surprised there weren't more. I th I've heard that within cop policemen, there's a lot of drinking, but that didn't seem to, how did you guys blow off steam or how did you cope with the, the troubling deaths and stuff like that? Yeah, so I, I have a chapter on that and talk about, you know, some of the ways we, we dealt with the stress. Um, I would say, first of all, it helped that a lot of us had really good senses of humor. So um, it, I don't know that it immediately comes to mind when people think about cops or firefighters or EMTs. But in my experience, if, if you can handle that tremendous weight, you've got to have a release valve somewhere. And so a lot of it comes in practical joking and... Um, you know, and having the laughs with each other. So, um, you know, you, re you referenced drinking. So when I was going to school in Vermont, the drinking age was 18. And in downtown Burlington, there were 42 bars. So obviously there was a fair amount of student drinking. Um, for us on the ambulance squad in the fire department, you know, we were on duty most of the time. So we really didn't have the opportunities for, a, a, you know, a, a great deal of alcoholic consumption um, I, I did tend to get downtown periodically to go to something called Irish happy hour. I'm not Irish, but, uh, I enjoy fiddle on a bass and wonderful Irish folk songs. Uh, I, I touch on a variety of the ways that we dealt with stress. Um, 
one of my favorite stories is the story of, of the Uzi squirt guns versus the fire truck. And that's in that chapter. And uh, we made the mistake, some of us, of taking on people with our Uzi squirt guns who had access to a fire truck and then came back and got revenge on us. And I'll leave it at that. But it's a pretty funny story. And it's an example of kind of the hijinks that we engaged in when we weren't on duty that helped us to relieve stress. Right. And you also, I mean, talking about drinking, like God smiles on drunks and babies, like you handled so many different cases. I didn't know that you handled psych cases and, and uh, premature baby cases. Can you talk about some of those cases, maybe people or situations people might not have heard about? Sure. So um, we were one of the uh, only ambulances in Vermont for, for quite some time that handled uh, the transportation of premature babies. So they would be born, you know, in cottage hospitals in really small towns like upstate New York or New Hampshire. And so um, we would have a crew, you know, and, and these are college age students, you know, who are EMTs, firefighters we, who would get in the ambulance, usually in the middle of the night. We did about 110 calls a year. Uh, we would drive to the Medical Center Hospital of Vermont to the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, pick up an isolate, a doctor and a nurse, and then head off to, um, you know, go get the baby. And I, I say that it seemed like the majority of these calls came at night and came over torturous driving on slushy, icy roads. But, you know, that was just, that seemed to be the reality. Um, once we got to the hospital, we had to wait three hours usually for the baby to be stabilized by the doctor and nurse team. Uh, we would sleep in birthing beds uh, or other interesting arrangements, try to catch a few Z's. And then we would hop back in the rig and, and drive back often at like three and four in the morning to take the baby to the NICU. Uh, we saved a lot of lives. And you know, uh, I have a son who was in a NICU for a week and I, I don't think it really hit me until my son spent a week in the NICU, which, which was probably one of the most difficult weeks of my family life, just how important that, that mission was. You know, for those parents in these remote hospitals, they probably would have watched their, their babies die if we hadn't uh, had this, this calling to, to go provide this for them. So uh, something I'm very proud of. And I'm sorry, what was the other question? Oh, just like you said, God smiles on drunks too, right? So you're handling drinking cases and you know. yeah i mean i say that a bit tongue-in-cheek but um one of the calls in that chapter is, you know certainly demonstrates that um a drunk patient who uh, in a, on a, like a february night wandered in the snowy wilderness next to his car crash until he plunged 15 feet head first down a snowy embankment and stopped like a foot short of crushing his head open on some rocks in a stream there. And by the time we finally figured out where he was and slid down with a backboard and strapped him on and got him out of there, the, the irony is that because he was so drunk, he, aside from you know, a little hypothermia, he had really no injuries because his body, you know, kind of bounced. Now, granted, I wasn't around for the x-rays, but um, that was one of the stories in that chapter. Yeah, you couldn't find him the first time and left and then got called back to the scene after you found him down or somebody found him down on the ditch. But uh, yeah, the police had called us. And the first time we all looked around, 
and couldn't find the patient, which was kind of funny. You know, it's like they had assumed the police had assumed if there was a car there and crashed on the side of the road with the door open, there must be a patient around somewhere. So uh, after we looked around for 20 minutes, we went back to the rescue garage. We were just sliding back into bed and the tones went off and halt, called us back there. And the officer had found the guy down in the creek. Right. And a lot of people think that you're the ones who, if there's a person who's passed away, the EMT are the ones who handle that. But that's not the case, is it? So I, I think, you know, I've been actually giving this some thought recently, and I think some of the confusion came because in the old days, it was the undertaker who came for patients. So, you know, the undertaker would either provide first aid assistance or they would zip the patient into a body bag and drive them away. But uh, no, I mean, modern EMS, you know, we, we don't transport bodies. And, you know, I still see this on television and it drives me crazy when I see the EMTs with a body bag on their stretcher, you know, taking them out to the rig. That we just that that didn't happen. We would transport patients who might be in the act of dying because we were doing everything that we could to save their life. But uh, we we didn't haul bodies, although Lord knows we saw plenty of them. Right, and I mean, what other stories did you? I mean, you came across like psych. You did a lot of driving in that rig too, right? I mean, it was you were there. Are tales of you going significant amounts of distances that I was surprised um, from that area of Burlington, right? So yeah, I I love driving an ambulance. I still have days today where I see an ambulance go by code three, and I think, man, that looks like fun. I'd love to get back behind the wheel of a rig. It's better than any video game. Um, especially, you know, if you're 19, it's, it's a real kick. So, um, I, so I trained on the squad to become a crew chief. Uh, and then I, you know, also trained to become a driver. So driver training is extremely difficult. We would be taken out on a snowy night into a huge parking lot where we would do donuts and uh, practice turning at high speed and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's a lot of backing up. If you're going to drive a rig, so, you know, backing up into the emergency room um, bays or backing up into your headquarters. So you have to become very adept at that. Uh, when I was training, I was the winner of the broken taillight award because I cracked the rear taillight when I was, while I was learning how to back into the garage. And I was presented with a varnished plaque with a grotesquely broken taillight on it at that year's fire and rescue banquet, which... I took some degree of chagrin at, but uh, it was a rotating award, so I didn't get to put it on my wall. It was given to someone else the following year. Um, there's, there's a lot of stereotypes about driving an ambulance, and one of them is that we drive really fast. And I would say that's actually not the case, that the first ambulance that St. Mike's had was T-boned coming out of the parking lot of a hospital near our school by someone who just wasn't looking and just slammed right into us. Fortunately, we didn't have a patient in the rig, but the crew was injured. Um, we would really take it slowly and cautiously, especially through uh, stoplights. And it it's, was a regular source of amazement to me that I would drive into an intersection and I would there would just be people there who simply did not register that I was there. And I would have a siren going, I would have lights going. Occasionally, I would utilize what I called my pointing technique with these folks. I would glare at them through my military sunglasses and point my finger at them uh, from inside the ambulance with the finger held up against the glass. 
And it was amazing how that always worked. They didn't see my lights. They didn't hear my siren. But they would see me pointing at them, and they would stop on a dime so my rig can go past. Right. I mean, it is amazing. And people have that perception. They think uh, you guys are always driving 100 miles an hour, but that's not the case, right? I mean, yeah. And you still see that today, too. And you learned always to carry a pen and a piece of paper with you, right? Yeah, you know, I still do that today. But uh, um, that's, that's the biggest. I like to say with a, for a first responder that that's, those are the two most important tools that you have. That if you show up at a car accident scene, and this is not just if you're an EMT, let's say you just see a car accident and you want to help out, you know, bring a pen and paper, talk to the people who are involved in the accident, uh, ask them for their full names, their date of birth, uh, what their chief complaint is. I mean, what, what does what hurts and then uh, are they allergic to any medications and you can get all that information down and then when the emts or paramedics show up you can hand them that piece of paper and they'll greatly appreciate it you'll have made their life a lot easier and you kind of i mean that job you kind of are in a different environment like your holidays and uh weekends are much different than the average person though the nine to fivers right yeah so i have a chapter in the book that's called Christmas, Easter, and other injustices. And uh, it talks about that. So, um, and again, somewhat facetiously, but, uh, you know, we were, we were privileged to be in this organization. Uh, we were there to serve. And so um, we ran a lot of holidays. Um, I, Thanksgiving, pretty much every year I was on duty. Um, I lived in California and my parents decreed that I was coming home for Christmas, but uh, the rest of the year, you know, Easter, Columbus Day, uh, whatever, was on the rig. And as I say in one of the chapters, that it can actually be very relaxing running a week of nonstop duty over Easter break, depending on your definition of relaxing. So, um, you know, if you don't mind your relaxing day punctuated by car accidents and chokings and diabetic comas, which we didn't, uh, you can also just catch up on your shut eye and see some movies and perhaps go get a nice meal somewhere. Interesting. Did you, well, you were kind of before the opioid crisis, right? Did you see many drug cases? Yeah. You know, it's uh, I did an interview with a reporter uh, when the book first came out and he was asking me about that too. And I think that our crews deal with a lot of that these days from what I hear. Um, I saw a lot of, cases involving alcohol and obviously people consuming way too much alcohol. We saw some cases that involved um, cocaine. Uh, most of the drug calls that I went on were acid, probably some marijuana. And it was the acid calls. It was an, on an acid call that I nearly got kicked in the head by a guy who was on acid. I was down on the floor working on a patient who was having difficulty breathing and he decided for some reason, I hadn't even I mean, looked at him, that he was going to strike me in the head with his boot. But there was um, a cop standing next to him, Carrie, who I barely knew at that point. And she immediately sat down very hard on this gentleman. And he kind of went, oh, and she grinned at me and, looked, and said, carry on. And <laughs> I said, thanks. And uh, so I continued treating the patient on the floor. But it was only after that when a, a good friend of mine who was a Burlington police officer received a head injury in the line of duty that derailed his career. 
that I realized what Carrie had saved me from, you know, she had saved me from a significant injury. So, um, I was, I was very fortunate in that situation, but, but those are the kind of drug calls that we saw. And, uh, the chapter that opens the book, uh, after the introduction, that's called the double forking involves patients who are on acid. Right. There's two people fighting each other with a pair of forks. Yeah. With weird injuries. <laughs> yep. I mean, you have probably seen it all. I bet. I mean, even in a fairly rural community, uh, there's a lot even and not even in an urban environment, right? I mean, you're still seeing the human condition right up front, right? Well, you know, so we, we weren't entirely rural. Uh, so Winooski, Vermont is, you know, an old mill town. Um, it's a small city, really. And we, we covered all of Winooski. Uh, we covered suburbs of South Burlington um, and parts of Williston. And then we also covered rural neighborhoods that went out from there, uh, Jericho, Hinesburg, St. George. Uh, we had a 27-mile stretch of the interstate that we still cover. And so you would see a lot of high-speed car crashes there. But yeah, it was an interesting juxtaposition, you know, to go from some of the, the sadder, uh, more poverty-type calls uh, that we might see in certain city environments, pretty gritty, to go out to a farm and uh, be treating, you know, a patient on the farm who had spilled heating oil on himself and then given himself third-degree burns. He was a, a farm laborer uh, that happened during the night, you know, or other injuries that could happen on a farm. Uh, or to, to go off to the interstate, I mean, uh, you know, the interstate can deliver some pretty horrific car accidents. So, yeah, we had quite the variety pack. Well, Chris, we're at about 35 minutes. Is there anything you, I mean, there's a lot more in this book. It's very well written and a kind of very personal first person uh, record of your, your time behind the wheel. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed? Well, I would say that for me, um, I've always enjoyed adventure stories. I've always enjoyed adventures, but you know, I do a lot of reading on World War II. Uh, I'm reading a soldier story right now by Omar Bradley. Um, I like cocktails. I just read a book called Boot about uh, an LAPD rookie's first year. And I enjoy EMS and fire tales. So I'd say if, if you're someone that, that likes a, an adventure tale, you know, this is probably for you. Uh, I took a look at Amazon over, it was the day after Thanksgiving, and the book was number one on Amazon Prime the day after Thanksgiving. And it, it gave me a, a happy, cozy feeling to think that people all over the U.S. were curled up on their Kindle, reading crazy ambulance tales to, you know, cook off some of that turkey they'd consumed the day before. So um, that's my point of view on the book. It's there, there are stories that I enjoy reading still, and and I would say, you know, if you imagine a primitive tribe from thousands of years ago sitting around a campfire telling each other the touchstone stories of their tribe, well, the stories in this book are the touchstone stories of St. Michael's Fire and Rescue. They're the stories that we would sit around, you know, the Fire and Rescue Bar, the Last Chance Saloon in downtown Burlington, and tell each other, you know, over some beers at the table there. You know, stories like the double forking, the patient that hid in the closet, the battling dwarves, uh, the time, as my kids say, when, when Big Eddie and Dad drove Code 3 through the gas station. That's the kind of stories that are in this book. 
And uh, for the most part, they're fun stories. Um, when I was starting to write the book, one of my buddies is a former military medic who served with a Marine sniper platoon said to me, you know, Chris, nobody wants to read a bunch of sad stories. And I agreed with him. You know, so the stories that I do my best to tell in this book are the funny, crazy, kind of wild ones um, that will hopefully make you laugh and also make you cry like in a good way, like make you choke up a little bit and say, you know, ah, oh, that's nice. And where's the best place for people to get this? Do you recommend Amazon? Is that is that the optimal spot? Yeah, that's probably the best place. You know, you can go to Amazon.com or uh, if you want to go to www.crazyambulancetales.com. Uh, there's an excerpt of the book there. There's the story of the battling dwarves. Uh, there's uh, some information about St. Mike's, uh, about me. And, and you, there's a button there that you can click on then to go through to Amazon and purchase the book if you'd like. And it's available on Kindle uh, in a hardcover and uh, in paperback. And is that the best place to contact you as well? If anybody has any further questions, is that crazyambulancetales.com? Sure. Yeah, they can reach out to me there. And I'm always happy to entertain questions. It's actually been a lot of fun having that contact page there because I had a lot of people who uh, either ran with St. Mike's or with local fire departments or squads reach out to me. And we've had some fun reminiscing to do together. Interesting. That's great. Yeah. I mean, if I find that that's one of the parts of writing a book is actually the contact because people will link up with each other, whatever the subject matter or anything like that, people might add something or commentary so it's always good to reach out to contact and so you can reach chris trees for people on audio at crazy ambulance tales and again the title of the book i highly recommend this book crazy ambulance tales just published march 22nd 2022 and the author is chris trees thanks so much for your time thank you greatly enjoyed it likewise stay there stay there <laughs>